This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show, and we welcome back to our show Chuck Collins. Chuck Collins is the a senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies, the Northampton, Boston, and Washington, D.C.-based Institute for Policy Studies. He is the director of the Program on Inequality and the Common Good at the Institute for Policy Studies, and he is the co-editor of Inequality.com. Chuck Collins is a graduate of Hampshire College. He worked for a long time in Greenfield. He's one of the founders of United for a Fair Economy, and among his books are Robin Hood Was Right, Born on Third Base, and most recently, The Wealth Hoarders. The Institute for Policy Studies and two studies which Chuck Collins has co-authored recently really caught my attention and I think are really important, particularly here in Massachusetts. One of those studies was on billionaires in Massachusetts, which I want to hear a, a lot about this morning, and we will. The other study is about how the super-rich use uh, philanthropy to essentially increase and hoard their own wealth and power. Let's start with billionaires in Massachusetts, because this is an issue front and center on the political radar screen here, as you know, Chuck, because of the Fair Share Amendment. The Fair Share Amendment actually does not tax wealth. The Fair Share Amendment, as proposed, is an increase, a surcharge on income over adjusted gross income, actually, over a million dollars a year. So if you make a million dollars a year, your total increase in your taxes in Massachusetts after the Fair Share Amendment will be zero. But if you make $2 million one year, you're going to have to pay $40,000 more in taxes, give or take. So this, of course, has engendered significant opposition from the super wealthy, but most people seem to be in favor of it. That is in favor of the Fair Share Amendment. In any event, we will find out how this works when we go to the polls in November. Chuck Collins, you did a study on billionaires in Massachusetts. What did you find out? Well, uh, Massachusetts, for our population, has a higher share of billionaires than a lot of other states. We have 21 billionaires. Their combined wealth, when we looked at it in June, was about $80 billion. And again, as you pointed out, we're talking about wealth, not income. We're talking about uh, you know, accumulated wealth. And another finding we had wasn't specific to billionaires, but there are 800 people in Massachusetts with over $30 million in wealth. And if you put the billionaires together with that, what they call ultra high net worth group, 30 million and up, we've, that, they, that group of 800 have a combined wealth of about $224 billion. And that throws off a lot of income and that's income that will be taxed by the fair share amendment. What tax people call unearned income because it's just not just, it's income produced by assets, not income produced by work. So what does that tell us about the Fair Share Amendment? Well, it, 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 one thing it tells us is that the Fair Share Amendment actually does tax some of these, these gains. Uh, it, 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 you know, income can come from wages, but in this case, there's a substantial amount of income from wealth that, uh, as you say, the unearned income. And actually, I remember in Massachusetts back in the day, we had two tax rates. They had a higher tax rate on income from capital gains. They called the unearned income tax. 
uh, now we now we uh, we obviously don't don't uh, treat them differently. So so yeah, the fair share amendment will get at both the enormous income gap, but also will tax some of this wealth income from wealth and assets and investments. And will produce produce about two billion dollars in tax revenue a year for use in education and transportation. Let's go back to the billionaires, the 21 billionaires. Uh, do we know who they are? And do we know how they made their money or inherited their money, as the case may be? Yeah, um, actually, we, we know who they are. And actually, uh, the report, Bay State Billionaires, kind of lists them all and, and who they are. But just to give you the picture, uh, you know, the wealthiest uh, person in Massachusetts is Abigail Johnson, who's the uh, the, the chief executive officer of Fidelity Investments. Uh, we'll talk about Fidelity again when we talk about the largest charities in the country, but she's worth like $20 billion. And uh, her brother is, uh, is one of the other big, big asset owners. But uh, a couple things we know about our billionaires. One is they did very well during the pandemic. They saw their wealth go up, uh, you know, somewhere in the range of uh, 30 to 40% increases just in the two years of the pandemic. And Massachusetts minted a number of new billionaires during the pandemic, uh, specifically the ones that were involved in, in helping, uh, you know, in big pharma and, and uh, finance. So most of our billionaires uh, come from three industries, finance, technology, and healthcare. And is this money earned these assets accumulated because of their success in industry in high tech in in uh, finance or in another field um, or is this money that is significantly inherited probably in most cases the uh, the the wealth is from people who uh, in their lifetime uh, purchased shares or, or started businesses um, but you know what we've looked at is a lot of them are what you could call just kind of standing in the right place at the right moment. They were in investments or businesses that saw huge gains. And during the pandemic, uh, if you invent, invented a patent for a vaccine, you reaped a tremendous windfall. So uh, both inherited and uh, being in the right place at the right time. So there are a couple in, the, in your report on Bay State Billionaires couple of people who made their billions and that has accumulated these assets really on account of the pandemic itself. In addition to the fact that as a group, the billionaires, as you point out in your report, the billionaires assets increased uh, something close to 40% during the pandemic. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, if you think about, uh, you know, three of the billionaires are, um, from the vaccine maker Moderna, um, they they were b both investors and people who helped create the intellectual property, create create the drug. Those are folks who, uh, you know, they 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 would not have this wealth if it were not for the pandemic. So they reaped a windfall from the pandemic, and the investors benefited from, you know, some of some of these uh, energy and and financier types benefited from the fact that their competition was sort of shut down, that Main Street was shut down and Wall Street benefited from from that. So uh, they were they were again reaping windfalls from from the pandemic. 
Well, let me ask you this. You've done this study on Bay State billionaires. We have 21 billionaires. Uh, they have assets, I think you told us, uh, in total of some 80 plus billion dollars, 80 plus billion dollars, uh, which throws off a lot of income, of course. Uh, I'm wondering if there's a part of this report on Bay State billionaires that actually surprised you. You're a person who studied wealth and wealth accumulation uh, and patterns of inequality uh, in the country for many, many years, Chuck Collins. I'd appreciate it if you could tell us whether there's something about this study of billionaires in Massachusetts that surprised you. Well, I guess uh, in, in one sense, it didn't surprise me in that this is tracked what's happening to billionaires nationally. What I found interesting was how Massachusetts billionaires, first, that, that we have so many, uh, and in that, in, in that way, it's not surprising because Massachusetts is a center of finance and health uh, and big pharma. But uh, for a small state, we are like have the number six number of billionaires in the country. Um, so I didn't really, you know, and then again, looking at the next tier, 800 people with 300, I'm sorry, with 30 million and more. So we're a much richer state than than I, I originally had thought in terms of the very top, the wealth of the very rich. Tell us a bit more, if you would, about what this study shows about what the Fair Share Amendment is apt to do both to the finances and to the quality of life here in Massachusetts. Well, in some ways, the Fair Share Amendment, to the, the, in terms of it affects these alternate high net worth people, they're not going to be paying that much more in taxes. They're going to pay, you know, a, a, a couple percent more on their incomes over a million. Um, these are folks who can well afford that, and and they will be paying a lion's share of the tax. So you know, again, you pointed it out. You, you, you they're not, you know, there's an estimated maybe nineteen thousand people with incomes over a million dollars in Massachusetts, but these eight hundred folks the multimillionaires and billionaires, they're going to pay a huge percentage of that tax. And they are undertaxed in every other part of their life. They don't pay much in the way of federal tax. They don't pay much in the way of state tax. So this is a good way that we can make the Massachusetts tax system a lot fairer. Yeah, talk about uh, that for a little bit more, if, if you would, please, Chuck, because what you've pointed out in many of your studies and your books and your speeches and articles you've authored is that uh, people who work for a living uh, and are paid an hourly wage pay a much higher percentage of their income in taxes, uh, either state or local or sales taxes, than, than rich people pay in taxes. As uh, Warren Buffett famously said, I pay a smaller percentage in taxes than my secretary, um, which did not uh, in, uh, you know, uh, make him very popular among the wealthiest of the wealthy, but it's true. So tell us how the system, the tax system uh, writ large, actually affects this and creates this result. Yeah, I mean, I think what we've seen since the 1950s is that the taxes on the very wealthy have been steadily going down, down, down. And Massachusetts is unique in that uh, we have this constitutionally mandated flat tax. So, uh, in other states, if if you you know if you go to Maine, 
or Vermont or other New England states other than New Hampshire, you will see a progressive income tax, meaning the higher your income, the higher percentage of income you pay in taxes. But here in Massachusetts, whether you have 10,000 or 10 million income, you pay the same flat rate. And that's because 100 years ago, the, the Cabots and the Lodges and the ultra wealthy in the state embedded in our constitution this idea that there's a flat tax. So this is the, we, we, the voters of Massachusetts, have an opportunity to fix that. And by doing that, we will we'll fix a very regressive state income tax. You know, uh, low and in, low income residents in Massachusetts are paying the same rate as the millionaires. And we will be able to fix it and make it a much fairer system. And hence, the ballot question is called the Fair Share Amendment because it is indeed an amendment to the Constitution and allows this charge, this tax for income over a million dollars a year. We're going to continue our conversation with Chuck Collins right after this. We'll be back with more. We're going to talk about how philanthropists actually function like governments in some ways. We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Modest, very minimal increase in the police budget, largely uh, due to just regular contractual um, obligations. Holyoke is nothing like Northampton and Greenfield. The quality of life uh, issues, our demographics, very, very different. So I can never compare our police departments. The challenges we have going on in our city are very, very different. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Hi, it's Jessica, owner of Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. As the weather gets warmer, I know many of you are thinking about your summer workout schedule. And if you're like me, it's all about finding work, life, and workout balance, which is why when you sign up at Fitness Together, you'll put a schedule together with your personal trainer that actually works for you, is stress-free, and will help you stay fit, healthy, and balanced. Visit us online today at fitnesstogether.com, Amherst, or Northampton, and sign up for your free consultation. Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. But I don't see wine here, Ringo. What do you got? Well, who am I? You're the spirit guy. Uh-oh. So you're taking me down the road of spirit. So our next whiskey is from High Coast. It's called Have, H-A-V, which means sea, like the ocean. Where's High Coast? Sweden. What? The Swedish whiskey. Have. And this one was in uh, the top whiskeys of the year list. It was number six. Wow. You're right? Swedish whiskey. I mean, I know they have really good food there because of the Swedish chef. Yeah. Naturally. Bork, bork. You have to assemble this whiskey all by yourself without any instructions. That's the <laughs> thing about it. They trap you in this big box and then they give you like just diagrams of what you're supposed to do with it. Yeah, just pictures of grains. It's whiskey from Sweden, from High Coast. And how much is this one? You can have this one for $57.99. I like what you do there see and that's a good price too find your favorite whiskey and your next favorite whiskey at state street hi i'm kate kelly public health nurse with the city of northampton 
The Northampton Health Department is holding vaccination clinics in Northampton and other locations in the region. Outdoor walk-in availability has reopened at the Northampton High School. Dates, locations, and appointments for all clinic sites can be found at the City of Northampton website. Go to www.northamptonma.gov and click on Vaccine Clinics. The clinics continue to offer Pfizer, Pediatric Pfizer, and Moderna vaccines, and in special situations, Johnson & Johnson. Clinics will also offer boosters to anyone ages 5 and up. The COVID vaccine is free for anyone from any community. Please bring your vaccine card and insurance card. If you do not have health insurance, you can still have a vaccine. Public health nurses are available at every clinic for your questions or concerns. Booster shots are one more layer of protection against COVID-19, and they prevent a huge number of people from needing to go to the hospital. We want to protect our most vulnerable or simply unlucky neighbors from getting the virus. We can't afford to let our guard down. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Chuck Collins, who is the director of the Program on Inequality and the Common Good at the Institute for Policy Studies, the Northampton, Boston, and Washington, D.C.-based Institute for Policy Studies. Chuck Collins is also co-editor of Inequality.org and the author of many books, including Robin Hood Was Right, Born on Third Base, and The Wealth Hoarders. We have been talking about the fair share amendment. We've been talking about the 21 billionaires in Massachusetts and the 800 people in Massachusetts who are of extremely high net worth of over 30 million or more and how taxing them a little more on income over a million dollars per year will generate a lot of money for education and transportation here in the Commonwealth. That's the fair share amendment that will be on the ballot in November. I want just to ask you two other questions Two more quick questions about that before we go on to the second study that you co-authored recently, Chuck, and that is, where are the billionaires? Where do they live in Massachusetts? They're very much um, grouped in the eastern part of the state, uh, probably inside the the 128 Beltway or up the North Shore. Um, I think there's one that's in the Berkshires, but other than that. And these names are are in the report. I mean, we can download them from the Institute for Policy Studies, right? That's right. Yep. I, I, uh, Bay State Billionaires is the actual name of the report. If you Google that, you'll find. And l- let me ask you this one final question on this topic. Uh, do the billionaires oppose the fair share amendment or some of them say, hey, we are the recipients of this extraordinary infrastructure and these programs that make Massachusetts an intellectual center, an economic center, and we're the beneficiaries. We're happy to pay back a little What is for, for, for this commonwealth that has given us so much or is that not the position? Yeah, none of the 21 billionaires have publicly come out in support of it, but uh, a number of other, uh, what I would call the ultra high net worth group have, have said, this is no big deal. This is how, you know, what a fair tax system looks like. Um, you know, uh, and some of those people have been very outspoken in support of it over the years. So it, it uh, you know, there are people mostly in the sort of the high tech council that are spending money to oppose it or to try to knock it off the ballot uh, as they did two years ago. Um, but, uh, you know, we're, we're, but if there are any billionaires out there listening that want to weigh in in support of the fair share amendment, I'm sure that would be a really welcome development. Let's just ju- stop spending money opposed to it. <laughs> yeah, that would be a good thing. Uh, 
and, and we'll talk more about this, and I think the essentially misleading ads that are about to come out uh, in opposition to the Fair Share Amendment, uh, and we'll talk about more as we get closer to the election. I, I'd like to know uh, more about the second studies that you just co-authored, uh, Chuck Collins, and that has to do with philanthropy. And most people would say, look, if Bill Gates wants to give a few billion dollars away to charitable institutions and philanthropic endeavors, isn't that a really good thing? And you say, well, yes and no. Tell us about the no. Yeah, I think we should uh, we should uh, be very skeptical when we hear about these these acts of billionaire philanthropy. Uh, the first reason that we should care about it, though, is because it's our tax dollars at work. These billionaires are reducing their taxes by giving to charities. And uh, we, our study shows that for every dollar that a billionaire gives to charity, 74 cents of that is lost tax revenue. So we're chipping in, we the taxpayers are chipping in 74 cents for every buck that a billionaire gives to charity. And the second reason is it's private power. And at this stage, our philanthropy system, these large foundations are taxpayer subsidized extensions of private power. We're essentially subsidizing billionaires and their private power and influence through the through the tax system. And by saying they're taxpayer subsidized, we're not paying our taxes to it. We are just not receiving the taxes we would have or should have received. Yeah, wealthy people are opting out of paying their fair share of taxes by by giving to charity. Now, some of that's good and we can look around and see useful work that's being funded by the charity system, but let's not get all fuzzy eyed about it, you know, in terms of understanding, this is our tax dollars. We're, it's a system that's subsidized by the rest of the taxpayers. Explain that a little more for those of our listeners who say, wait a second, I understand this is a tax deduction, but I don't quite uh, understand the connection to how I as a person am really subsidizing the billionaire's uh, philanthropy. Tell us, explain that a bit more for so, us, if you would, please. Yes. So we have a we have a, a system that encourages people to give charitable donations to qualified charities, uh, and that means you basically reduce your taxes. the The number of people who do that keeps shrinking. By the way, it's you know you have to itemize your taxes. You have to kind of go into the detail and say, I gave money here, money here, money here. The wealthier you are, the bigger the tax reduction, because you're not only reducing your income tax, you're reducing your estate and gift and capital gains tax. It's a little complicated, but the richer you are, the more money you give to charity, the more your taxes are less. And so you could have a Bill Gates who gives $130 billion to the Bill Gates Foundation. He's not paying taxes on any of that $130 billion of Microsoft wealth, not a nickel will go to pay for roads and infrastructure and public investments. Bill Gates will have $130 billion tax deduction that he can use over as many years as he wants to, uh, and he will never have to sell and pay a capital gains tax on that stock from Microsoft, which he contributes to the Bill Gates Foundation. That basically it. will never He'll never uh, that that money will never be subject to a tax. Okay, so uh, you say in your report, 
a no, you make a number of really, I think, uh, salient points. Let's start with what should happen. Is, is, uh, what, what does your report or the report from the Institute for Policy Studies, what do you say should happen with regard to this system? Well, first, I think we should understand that, uh, you know, philanthropy is not a substitute for a fair tax system. The second thing is that wealthy donors don't necessarily give money directly to their to charities. They put it in private foundations and donor advised funds. There was 120, it was over a trillion dollars of wealth warehoused in these charitable in, you know, intermediaries that the, that the super rich create. So our, our recommendations are transparency, show us where the money's going, uh, disclose where it's going, because some of it's going into sort of uh, the, the dark corners, dark money, uh, political advocacy, but also move the money, tax it, you know, uh, require higher payouts, require foundations to pay out the money quicker to the nonprofits, stop warehousing, and stop using uh, philanthropy as essentially a tax dodge. Those are the proposals that we put forward. And when you say pay out the money faster, what do you mean? Yeah, uh, if, if you create the Bill Newman Foundation and you put your first billion in there. How about the first five? Come on, let's, 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 let's talk real money here. Okay. Yeah, you, you immediately reduce your taxes in the year that you give that money. But then you've got the Bill Newman Foundation that you're, you know, this, this, this huge asset. The, the law is that I control. The, the person who gave the money control still it. controls the, the asset. Yeah. You only have to give out or pay out 5% a year uh, under the current tax rules. Um, and you can include your overhead bill in that, by the way. You can, over, you can pay your children. You can pay your friends. Can I pay Monty? You, you can pay Monty. Monty can be your advisor. <laughs> yes. uh, all of that counts toward that 5%. Our view is that's that there's a, a risk of a certain amount of self-dealing there and that we, the taxpayer, should not be subsidizing your or Monty's salary uh, in the process of giving out that money. The money, 5%. So our view is increase the payout, double it to 10%. Let's move this money so it doesn't sit in sort of a perpetual family foundation for generations to come. So for the billion dollars that I just gave to the Monte Belmonte Foundation, um, he or the directors, the trustees, or the, don or the advisors to the donor advice fund would have to give out 10% or $100 million a year. That, uh, that's not, right. That's we, right. Um, we, we got, you got your tax break. Now move the money. That's our, our perspective. Don't, don't hoard it. Don't, you know, Think of it as a perpetual multi-generational institution. Move the money. By the way, if he if you give it to Monty's donor advice fund, there's no obligation or requirement that a donor advice fund pay out. So Monty could start doing interesting impact investing projects and all kinds of other things, but the money isn't going to the charities in, in the Pioneer Valley. It's just sitting in this donor advice fund. Monty, so I'm so disappointed. Can I have a spaceship? Because I want to go to low Earth orbit like the other billionaires. You could probably invest in some academic program in space research, and you would get a free ride. Nice. 
Okay. We have a last question to end this on. I hope we'll continue this conversation in coming shows, Chuck Collins. Uh, what are the odds that in Congress there could actually be some legislation that would affect, uh, put into place uh, some of these reforms that you and the Institute for Policy Studies call for in your new report? I think there's a real appetite for reform. And I think uh, the, the, the current reform legislation out there, something called the ACE Act, Accelerating Charitable Effectiveness, has uh, bipartisan support, has you know Republican and Democratic co-sponsors. Um, we just did a poll, Ipsos did a poll on public attitudes showing that when the public understands this system, they, they, they support much bolder reforms than are currently being discussed. They think wealthy donors should move the money within two to five years of getting a tax break. And we have this whole system of perpetual foundation. So most people would not support tax dollars being used in that way. So there's a real appetite for bolder reform. We're going to continue this conversation, I hope, with Chuck Collins in coming shows. So much more to talk about. We really appreciate your insights, your books, your reports. Uh, people who want to get the reports go where, Chuck? Uh, best place is inequality.org. That's the website we co-edit at Institute for Policy Studies, and you'll find all of our research on these issues there. Chuck Collins, thank you so very, very Thanks, much. Thanks, Bill. You're Thanks. a rich girl, and you're going too far, because you know it don't matter anyway. You can rely on the old man's money. You can rely on the old man's money. It's a this is girl. Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Congressman Jim McGovern and Ed Markey are introducing legislation today to protect the Deerfield River. The Deerfield River Wild and Scenic River Study Act will begin the process of securing wild and scenic status for major portions of the river. The bill commissions a study of the Deerfield River in Western Mass and Southern Vermont with the aim of incorporating it into the National Wild and Scenic River System. Police are investigating after shots were fired yesterday afternoon around 1 p.m. on Forbes Court in Greenfield. Officials say a male in a black Honda Accord drove to a residence and fired at least 12 shots with what is believed to be a 9mm pistol into the residence front door. The male fled the scene and evaded police officers who pursued him from Greenfield through Deerfield and into Amherst. The Greenfield Police Department is working with several units of the Massachusetts State Police to investigate the incident and locate the suspect. And anticipation is building, and so is the Mega Millions jackpot. Joan Holiday has more. The jackpot rolled again on Friday night after no ticket matched all six numbers drawn. The top prize has now soared to $790 million with a cash option of $464.4 million. There have been only three lottery jackpots ever won in any game at a higher level than Tuesday's estimated prize of $790 million. The next drawing is tonight at 11 p.m. Eastern Time. Joan Holiday, WHMP News. Partly to mostly sunny, breezy today, low humidity, a high of 80 to 84, mostly clear, cooling down tonight, overnight low of 54 to 60, mostly sunny tomorrow, a high of 84 to 88. The humidity is back on Thursday with a mixture of sun and clouds and watch out for an afternoon shower or thunderstorm, a high in the mid to upper 80s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. 
This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Roshi Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El Papa Francisco emitió una disculpa histórica el lunes por la cooperación de la Iglesia Católica con la política catastrófica de Canadá de las escuelas residenciales indígenas, diciendo que la asimilación forzada de los pueblos nativos a la sociedad cristiana destruyó sus culturas, separó a las familias y marginó a las generaciones. Lo siento profundamente, dijo Francisco ante los aplausos de los sobrevivientes de la escuela y los miembros de la comunidad indígena reunidos en una antigua escuela residencial al sur de Edmonton, Alberta. En el primer evento de su peregrinación penitencial de una semana, Francisco viajó a las tierras de cuatro naciones Cree para orar en un cementerio y luego entregar la disculpa tan buscada en los terrenos ceremoniales Pauau cercanos. Cuatro jefes escoltaron al pontífice en una silla de ruedas al sitio cerca de la antigua escuela residencial Hermineskin y le entregaron un tocado de plumas después de que habló, convirtiéndolo en un líder honorario de la comunidad. Como reflejo de las emociones conflictivas del día, algunos en la multitud lloraron y hasta clamaron mientras Francisco hablaba, mientras que otros aplaudieron o se quedaron en silencio escuchando sus palabras y otros optaron por no asistir en absoluto. En otras informaciones, el comité del 6 de enero de la Cámara de Representantes dijo el domingo que entrevistará a más exsecretarios del gabinete y está preparado para citar a la activista conservadora Virginia Thomas, quien está casada con el juez de la Corte Suprema, Clarence Thomas, como parte de su investigación sobre los disturbios en el Capitolio y el papel de Donald Trump. Los miembros del comité también esperan aprender más sobre el propio esfuerzo de Ginny Thomas para mantener a Trump en el cargo y los posibles conflictos de interés para el juez Clarence Thomas como resultado de los casos del 6 de enero que se presentaron ante la Corte Suprema. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. This is a bittersweet show. The co-festival of performance has been performing, creating, sharing in the Valley for some 31 years. And this year and the upcoming show will be the last show. So it is a time, it is a time for tears. It's a time for celebration for all that the co-festival has done for the Valley. Here with us is Sabrina Hamilton, who is the founder, the artistic director of the co-festival of performance, who has with her and us in the studio two very special guests. So Sabrina, Tell us a bit, if you would, please, about the upcoming performance. No, let's not do that. Let's start with how sad is this or how joyous is it? Oh, it's such a mixture. Uh, it is a, it's an emotional roller coaster. Um, it's incredible sweetness and uh, finally a time to rid my garage of the tubs and tubs <laughs> of dishes, plates, T-shirts, tools, all kinds of ephemera that is... It's time to move it on and to, as the last show we just did, make room for someone else. So co isn't disappearing. It's transforming into more of a, the new verb is to help rather than to just present. Okay. But co isn't gone yet. 
Coe has a it show is to not. do. So tell us what we is up. We are going on. out with a bang, something really special. We have two very special people with us in the studio. You want to introduce them to our listeners? I do. These are the folks who are at the core of this production, which we have been trying to bring here for three years. The Poor Amherst and Pelham Local Cultural Councils have read the same. I can't ask, do you want new language and new pictures this year? Are you, are you, can you just already have it memorized? Um, but they've let us... Uh, pivot the funding, pivot that lovely COVID word, um, and now we finally get to use it as part of bringing the folks from Clear Creek Creative who are here from Kentucky with a whole creative team, including Nick Sly and Jeff Becker, who are here from New Orleans, and they've been to the Co-Festival before. A lot of people still talk about Lou Guru, the show that they did outside in Amherst. What's this, the name of the show? This Where is, is called Ezel. Ballad of Landman, and it's going to be outdoors on the Hampshire College campus on Farm Center grounds. Um, but it is starting off at our box office area, and the audience will be taken on a guided walk to the performance site. But we'll, who we have here today are Bob Martin, um, a.k.a. Bobby B., and Carrie Brunk, who is the producer of this event. And uh, they just got in here from... Uh, their last performances in Buffalo late last night, along with a very interesting truck, which, thank God, they didn't take under the Northampton uh, <laughs> overpass <laughs> because we would have had crunch on Main Street. That is absolutely true. I, I, let me ask uh, Bob or Carrie, what's the, what are the origins of the show? What is the story? What is the narrative arc? Sure. So Ezel, Ballad of a Landman, is work that's been developed over the last uh, five or six years. Um, you know, extractive resource industry is not a new story where we come from in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. So we've been working with communities to help share their story about what extraction does to community spirit, to folks, to stories, to local culture. Um, during the fracking boom uh, following down from the Marcellus Shale into West Virginia and Kentucky, we had a landman come to our uh, the land that we steward um, Asking, approaching us to see if we'd be interested in, in uh, selling off the mineral rights for an experimental form of deep well fracking in our area. Um, you know, you don't have to look far to know that we have, uh, our, our work is about land, is about people, about food and whatnot. So we were curious whether this landman was um, feeling us out for a yes or a no or um, how that might play out. And we decided to just work with our local community to decide what is the future forward of this work, right? It's not that gas and, and oil is going to be the silver bullet to transition away from coal extraction, but what do we want our economy to look like and how might we tell stories about resilience and hope? And also, what do you do to the people and the culture and the stories when you do um, continue to, to focus on domination and extraction and how might we then transform that into into another space. So we've learned from our community, we've learned from these stories over the last hundred plus years, and we folded that into the story of a person, uh, Ezel Parsons, who is, who's taken a job as a landman in hopes of buying back his family land that they've been separated from. The title of the play, Ezel, Ballad of a Landman, what do you mean exactly by landman? Let me ask that to uh, Carrie Brunk. Sure. So uh, a landman uh, is essentially the, the sort of colloquial term for someone who's a hired speculator for the oil and gas industry, right? So he's the sub, 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 sub contractor who's coming to our door 
typically someone who's um, hired, who is of the community, right? But sometimes they come in from outside of the community, and they're the person that's really um, sent door to door uh, throughout a community to sell people on this deal, right? What are you, you've got mineral rights, give them to me. I'm going to resell them up the chain, right? And uh, we're going to pay you this amount, and then over time, right, the, the land man is sort of at the, at the bottom of the chain, in a sense, and over time, those land rights, those mineral rights will get sold and resold and resold up the chain um, as the extraction process uh, takes way. Now, Zell, the ballad of a land man, is this a narrative, is this a story that you wrote? Is this a true story? Is it a, a, a compilation? Uh, what is it that we'll be seeing? Uh, it's a story that I wrote. It's a story that's also our collaborators have added to with song and um, uh, process of devising how we respond to local stories that come up in the places that we we go to. Um, over the last 10 years, I've had the privilege of working with communities throughout Eastern Kentucky and supporting them in gathering oral histories and turning those oral histories into community-based plays and musicals that talk about the transitions of those communities healing past, visioning forward what those communities might be. And in that process, I've been, um, you know, gifted a lot of stories of, you know, we need, to, we need to talk about the brilliance and the resilience and the hope and the love that is embedded in folks who are, um, who are lovers of the land that they've grown up on and survivors of, of extractive resource industry and maybe not have access to that land playing forward. So there's a patchwork quilt of uh, personal stories, of community stories, of um, uh, mythology that is woven into this, this piece where you're following the journey of Ezel as he's reckoning with what happens when you, uh, when you play this game. And, and we say in the story, you know, try to outfox the fox of, of taking the job with the, with the industry and at the same time trying to um, run a game on the industry to get land back, to, to reclaim what was once considered right livelihood and a right relationship with land. Now, now Carrie and Bob, you, you, you both are, are from Appalachia. You're from Kentucky, yes? Okay. So uh, I don't want to be a bummer, um, but I need to ask, with what has just happened with Joe Manchin and the uh, United States Senate and the failure to come to grips with a lot of these extractive industries and the endorsement of coal uh, I'm wondering if you are discouraged from your work. We'll get to the art, art, artistry and all this in just a second, but I'm wondering as a political and personal matter whether you feel discouraged at this time. That's a great question. Um, you know, I have worked in, it was interesting listening to your earlier guest because I've worked in community organizing and, and economic justice um, for you know two two decades, and we see, I see personally, the artistic and cultural work that, that we do through Clear Creek Creative, through the CZL project, as part of uh, generating hope and keeping some sense of our resilience alive relative to um, the political conditions that are at hand. So, you know, whether it's West Virginia or Kentucky, um, it, can, it can often look like a very dismal political situation, but for us, the artistic and cultural work that we are doing is part of keeping the spirit of resilience and possibility and hope and, and truly like visioning another path forward um, alive. So while while the politics politics are 
uh, are certainly discouraging. I feel like the work of story and culture and artistry is really to um, keep our our vision and our you know our the the possibility of how it could be different alive. Could you tell us a bit more about the uh, play itself? How many people? How the uh, various cultural uh, uh, aspects of uh, uh, Kentucky and West Virginia uh, actually come into this play in terms of music, what the narrative arc is. Tell us just a bit more about what we'll see on stage. Sure. So the play uh, folds out, uh, unfolds in a, in a three-hour experience where you arrive on Hampshire's campus to the CoFest and you're meted by um, a set of guides who orient you to the space. And uh, in that process, you uh, take a journey through the woods guided by musicians You'll see sculptural elements installed around you. You'll listen to nature. It'll take you to Ezel's camp in the woods where you'll start to question, should I be here and what's going on in this space? And then the story will unfold um, in that middle act um, over an hour where you'll learn the story of Ezel and, and the choices that he feels that he has to make to try to reconnect the family land and what are the results of those choices. And then you'll be guided back um, into a community space where the community will get a chance to uh, have a moment of reckoning together and closing that that circle. So we f- we find that this um, this storytelling infused with music, uh, with a bit of audience participation, where people are allowed to just get to know who is in the space with them, and a walk in nature um, surrounds this experience uh, with with some magic that, that hopefully uh, grounds people in, in um, a unique theatrical experience. And then in typical co-festival fashion, uh, we will have a post-show discussion that people are invited to uh, in the, the cool uh, air-conditioned Hampshire College Theater afterwards. <laughs> um, but uh, And we will have various guests, including uh, Friday night, there will be Sarah Pirtle, who has been involved with the Hands Across the Hills that has been conducted connecting this area, particularly Leverett and, and Kentucky in a region right near near these folks. Um, and it's a chance also for us to talk about the extractive industries in our area, which include the clear cutting of local forests for industrial scale solar. Where do we get tickets? We get tickets by going to cofest.com. That's K-O-F-E-S-T.com. There's information there. And I want to remind people that there are unusual times because this is an off-the-grid show. So the performances, the audience will, will be gathering Friday and Saturday at 6.15 p.m. And on Sunday, it is 10.15 a.m. It's a show that's made for adults, but it is family-friendly. So um, all kinds of folks can come. We'll be back with more with Sabrina Hamilton, Carrie Brunk, and Bob Martin after this. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. The Afternoon Buzz with legendary civil rights attorney from Ashfield, Buzz Eisenberg. Buzz will bring you his take on the day's news, plus arts, culture, and politics from the Valley, weekday afternoons at 4. Brought to you by Lundgren, family-run since 1964. Greenfield's largest automotive group is the place to buy your next Honda, Chrysler, Jeep, Dodge, or Ram. Experience it in Greenfield. The Afternoon Buzz, 101.5 WHMP. At PV Squared Solar, we live by our mission, energizing a brighter future for people and planet. This year, we are celebrating our 20th anniversary. 20 years of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar. 
20 years of relationships founded on trust and clean energy. 20 years of powerful cooperation. Thank you for the partnerships along the way, and we look forward to serving this community for 20 years more. Happy birthday, PV Squared! Learn more at pvsquared.coop. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Corsello Butcheria? Correct! Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Corsello Butcheria, the Italian-style butcher shop in East Hampton. The meat is from nearby farms. The inspiration is a small family-run butcher shop in Rome. Stop in for a sandwich, for steaks or sausages for dinner tonight. Corsello Butcheria in East Hampton. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. at whmp.com. If your Spanish-speaking employees spoke better English, would that be good for business? If your English-speaking employees spoke a little Spanish, would that be good for business? The International Language Institute delivers workplace language training, improving communication among coworkers and with customers. You get financial assistance with the Massachusetts Workplace Training Express Fund. They cover 50 to 100% of the cost. So let's get going. Call or email the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. In a couple of hours or less, you can be at the beach, toes in the sand, bouncing in the waves, which means fresh just off the boat seafood is only a couple of hours away or minutes away at Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant, where the seafood is delivered direct from the fishing boats. Cod, salmon, scallops, no warehousing. It goes from the dock to the kitchen door. Try Paul and Elizabeth's fish and chips with that lighter than air tempura batter. Try the scallops broiled with garlic butter and fresh herbs. There's no beach at Paul and Elizabeth's, but the seafood? Caring for someone with cancer is hard. You're so busy taking care of someone else, you have no idea how you feel. There's so much you can't say. You run on adrenaline. You're worried you're going to burn out. Cancer Connection offers support groups just for caregivers, exercise classes to blow off steam, even Reiki. It's all free. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or to donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free of charge. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation about Izel, Ballad of a Land Man, with Sabrina Hamilton, Artistic Director of the Co-Festival of Performance, and Carrie Brunk and Bob Martin, who are bringing this magnificent play to Hampshire College this weekend. Quickly, this is a story about Land Man, someone securing mineral rights from homeowners. How does it, uh, giving up mineral rights like that, how does that hurt the homeowners? Essentially, they lose control of their, of their land, right? Essentially, it gives the company the right to do any form of extraction, wastewater, holding ponds, all of that to the land. Let me ask you this. This is, this is a play. Um, I assume it has uh, a lot of nuance and character development, and it's not a pedantic piece. Am I right about that? That's right. We've really sought to create a piece, particularly coming from, um, you know, our home base in, in Kentucky, where people have been relying on the fossil fuel industry for a century. We've, we've sought to create a piece where we're, we're telling a complex story and we're really giving the audience an opportunity to consider um, from, from all vantages, um, why do people make this choice, right? And, and how, how is that this, this opportunity uh, with the mineral rights, um, how is it a complex question for people, right? It's not straightforward. And this play has been performed where? Uh, many places, uh, several places in, in Kentucky, uh, New Orleans, uh, Buffalo, New York, uh, at Yale University uh, back in May, 
and uh, Damascus, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania. the Delaware River Valley, and most recently in Buffalo. And how many players, how many uh, actors are in in the production itself? We have a team of about eight here. Um, So Bob uh, is the lead lead performer, plays the the character Wiesel. Um, I play a character named Eliza. Then we have a number of musicians um, and guides who support the work. And that's one of the things that I loved when I saw, got to see the piece in Yale. It is so complex, and the way that they have used sort of theatrical magic. And there's another really key performer in the piece, which is the land itself. And you see and you hear about what happens through this fracking process to the land, and it breaks your heart. And the way that they use objects and water and basic elements that we all know and and transform them magically. makes it just a very special event that I know will stay with me for a very long time. And, and when Sabrina says it'll break your heart, I also want to say it's very much our intention to, to lift people back up out of that heartbreaking yeah. place um, because we're, you know, we're people who believe in a, a vision of, of change and we don't want to leave people in a despairing place. And there are laughs in this piece too. Good, hearty belly laughs. Sabrina, tell us again, please, how do we uh, uh, buy tickets and what happens if there's inclement weather? Oh, yes, because it's Massachusetts. They buy tickets at cofest.com. That's K-O-F-E-S-T dot com. If you don't have Internet access, you can call our box office phone line 413-559-5351 and we can help you there. Um, The show happens rain or shine. So if it's drizzling, bring those umbrellas. But if it's lightning, if it's dangerous, there is a rain date of Sunday at 6.15 p.m. So we leave it there. Sabrina Hamilton, Artistic Director of the Co-Festival of Performance. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's been a thank great you. run with you, Bill. Thank you for having us on so many. Harry Runk, Bob Martin, Break a Leg. Sounds like a fabulous show. Your phone is a radio. Your computer is a radio. Your smart speaker is a radio. And your radio is still a radio. You can listen to WHMP on all your devices and on 1415-1400-1240. WHMP. Dear Massachusetts, marijuana is now legal for adult use. Keep your kids and pets safe by keeping all cannabis products in child-resistant packaging. Store your cannabis in a lockbox out of sight and out of reach from your children and teach them that cannabis and alcohol are for adults only and that prescription medications are only meant for the person they are prescribed for. Brought to you by the Northampton Prevention Coalition, working together to protect the developing brain. NorthamptonPrevents.org. The only live and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley. WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 10 o'clock.